Thank you, Scout, for joining us. Give her a warm applause. Welcome. Well, nothing says Happy New Year like a sermon on the Mark of the Beast. Why am I preaching on the Mark of the Beast? Well, let me give you a little background here before you thought that I just decided to do this on my own. Uh, Dr. Yusuf and I were having a conversation considering all the fear and the concern that is just rampant right now. Uh, and as we, we've sung today about faith and faithfulness, uh, in the midst of that fear, uh, we were having a conversation uh, through some of this. And uh, later on, he came back to me and emailed me and said, hey, why don't you preach on the Mark of the Beast on uh, January 2nd? To, to which I, I responded, oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, and have asked for a lot of prayer in regard to this particular sermon. And in light of that, let us go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this text is um, so complicated. It has a lot of imagery. There's a lot going on in it. Father, but there's a lot going on in our world as well. Father, we ask for your discernment. We ask for um, your help here. Uh, as we bear with one another, as we come from different views and different perspectives on this particular passage, on this particular thing, Father, we ask that you, you, you help us look at your word, consider your word, and having heard your word, take it to heart. May your Holy Spirit, by and with your word, change us. And when we leave this room, may we be changed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we just got out of the Advent season, and in the Advent season, what we do is we celebrate the first coming of Christ as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, to his glorious Advent. But before Christ came, before the first Advent, there were various views about who the Messiah would be and what it would be like. In fact, there were three main views on what he would be like. And so these rabbis and these scholars would, would, would argue over the fact that he would be one or the other. And um, one group would say, uh, it's clear from Scripture that he's going to be a king. He's going to sit on the throne of David, and he is going to wage war against the Romans and drive them out of Israel. Well, some, some speculated that he would be a priest, that he would come and make pure sacrifices, that he would, he, he would teach holiness to God's people. No, no, he's, he's not going to be a king. He's going to be a priest. It's clear from Scripture. And some believe that he would be a prophet like Elijah, that he would usher in the repentance of God's people. And so they argued back and forth. And many Jews missed Jesus because of their assumption of what the Messiah should be, the presumption of who he should be. Jesus was, after all, a prophet, a priest, and a king, and a carpenter, and the God-man, and because of that, they missed it. They missed it. Jesus is the king who never sat on an earthly throne, but instead on the heavenly throne and one day will rule over the new earth. Jesus is the priest who never offered an animal sacrifice, but rather the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And Jesus is a prophet like Elijah or Moses, but greater than Elijah and Moses because he is very God of very God. Why do I tell you this? Because there were many ancient scholars back in the day on their version of YouTube telling everybody exactly what it was going to be like. 
that the Messiah would be this way or that way. And that error of presumption led them to miss Jesus. And we know that because of what John says in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 of his gospel. He says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So in much the same way, there are multiple ways people have viewed Revelation over the years. You, you could probably fill up several volumes with the kinds of, of views on Revelation, but they really do break out into four major views. And, and, and bear with me for a second. It's going to get a little scholarly for a second. Let me go through those four views before we get to our texts. First, the idealists. The idealists believe that the book of Revelation is an allegorical ongoing spiritual battle between God and evil. It doesn't really connect necessarily to history, but thematically through that war between God and evil, between the kingdom of of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. And it describes a spiritual struggle that's not tied to those historic events. But while there's a lot of allegory here that we can see, and that's definitely true, the downside of this particular view is that in Revelation 12, 1 through 5, scholars are pretty certain that's talking about the birth of Jesus. So there is something that's tied to history. So there's a downside to that particular view. Preterists are the next group. Preterists means past. And this group believes that all of the, um, or, or most of the, uh, what is said about Christ's second coming was fulfilled at 70 AD when the, when the temple was destroyed. Now, that's all fine and well. Uh, There are plenty of things that we can say probably in the book of Revelation and in the prophecies that came from Christ have been fulfilled in 70 AD, but not all of them. That is an error. That is a problem. Full preterism, saying that, 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 that Jesus has returned, is not biblically accurate. And there are people who believe that to this day who would say that they're living their best life now. And the reason they say they're living their best life now is because to them, Jesus has already returned. That's an error. We have to be careful with errors like that. Historicists, uh, like the Preterists, believe that Revelation is symbolic history. From the birth of Christ to the end of the age that depicts real history. The fault here is that, that, that Revelation becomes an inkblot test. So this is... Oh, this, this stands for the Reformation. Oh, this stands for this king. Oh, this stands for, for, for this, this person in history. And the problem is they continue to kind of guess. And in each different age, it's reinterpreted based on whatever's going on at the time. And finally, the futurists. The futurists believe that the book symbolically describes future events that have not yet happened. A problem this, with this would be if Revelation... 12, 1 through 5, is speaking about the birth of Jesus, then it is clearly talking about some things that have happened in the past. So why do I tell you all this? Because I know that those different views are represented here. And I haven't even touched on millennial views, and I won't. But I tell you that, not to bore you with scholastics, I tell you that because uh, the first advent of Christ, people were locked into the presumptions. And because they were locked into the presumptions, they missed it. 
It's important for us to hold those views lightly in our hands, having our minds being captive only to the Scripture. To be locked into a view and have something happen the way that you didn't expect it to happen can be very misleading. So it's very important for us, to, as we consider Scripture, to consider Opening, you know, holding our views open in our hands as, as far as just exactly how Jesus will come back. Because if he came back as a prophet, priest, and king, he's going to astound us yet again as this transpires. But our presumptions can lead us to read too much or too little into what's going on around us. And one of the things that you hear over and over again, one of those things that we reread either too much or too little into is the mark of the beast. Before we get too far here, let's look at Revelation 13, 11 through 18 and read what the word has to say about the mark. Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it, would, it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's man's number. His number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to ask for a sign of hands, but... um, have any of you ever gone to fill up your, your, your gas tank, top off your gas tank? And you get to the end of it, you're just sitting there, and it clicks, and you look back, and it says 666. And so you squeeze a little bit more gas into the tank. <laughs> or you've, or you've, you've, you've gone to check out, and something rings up with tax to 666, and you're like, you know what, I'll buy an extra pack of gum. We're very superstitious about that number and anything to do with the mark. It's always good for us to be aware of what's going on in the world. Yes, discernment hackles should go up when certain things happen or we we hear something in the news that sounds a little fishy. But not everything that looks like that $6.66 bill or that 6.66 gallons of gas is actually a fulfillment of what's going on here in Revelation 13. So we have to be careful and use discernment. But that doesn't keep bloggers, YouTubers, podcasters, and the like from stating emphatically that they know what this is. And that's dangerous. Over the years, it's been everything from Nero's face on a coin to MasterCard. Some would say Beast MasterCard at that point. Bitcoin, UPC codes, and yes, even a shot. Now, before you turn your computers off or you decide you're going to go take an extended break to, to take a drink from the water fountain, please stay with me. Please stay with me. While there may be good and logical reasons why you wouldn't want to be involved in any of those things that I just mentioned, that's Christian freedom. It doesn't mean that they're the mark of the beast. And I think that's very important for us because there's a lot of fear right now that somehow, some way, that we're going to accidentally 
take the mark because we're just going to miss what it is. Now, whether you're a historicist, preterist, idealist, or a futurist, there are three clear truths here about the mark of the beast. And those three truths have bearing even on our everyday lives here and now. The first truth is this. The mark will be clear to believers, though non-believers will be deceived. The mark will be clear to believers, though non-believers will be deceived. Where am I getting that from? After all, it says in verses 13 and 14, And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. But we that are true believers have discernment to recognize the deception. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. If we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, if we're intimate with God's word, we know the difference between one who speaks like a lamb and one who speaks like a dragon. That's the importance of being in God's word. When Jesus encounters the Pharisees, he calls them out. He tells them that they're, they're, they're coming as lambs, but they're speaking as dragons. In John 8, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus goes on and he shows us when he goes into the wilderness and he does battle with Satan who's trying to tempt him. He shows us what discernment looks like, how it looks to root out what sounds like it's coming from a lamb, but it really is a dragon. And he counters him two times with scripture. And the third time, Satan being where he comes at him with scripture and twists scripture, and then Jesus comes right back at him. And he disarms him. And he puts to death that temptation. Jesus is teaching us how to discern what is truth. And you see it through all scripture. You see it in, in the warnings against false prophets in the Old Testament. You see it when Paul impassionedly pleads with the Ephesian elders that they should be aware because wolves will come in after he's left. But the more familiar we are with the word, we know his heart. We know Christ's heart and we know the difference between how a lamb speaks and how a dragon speaks. And that's why Jesus can say in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. He says more that, there's more to that verse, but we'll come back to that later. The point here is that the sheep of Jesus know his voice. They know what is contrary to God's word and they know the voice of their master. Back when I was a youth pastor, I, I taped, um, uh, back, it was actually tape, back when we had videotape, uh, I taped commercials from the big game. I'm not probably supposed to say the name of that big game. Apparently I get fined for it. But that's when the, these advertisers were spending millions of dollars to get their message across. And so what I did was I would tape these and I'd show them to my youth group. I'd pick a few and say, okay, the more appropriate ones, what are they trying to sell how are they trying to sell it to you? And it would be interesting to see them pick apart these advertisements. And my point to them was this, look, the world is coming at you with a lot of messages. 
And your job as a believer is to not just let those uselessly fly past your conscience or affect you and not really do anything about trying to break them down. Your job as a believer is to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Every philosophy you're taught in school, everything that you hear from another person, everything that you read in the media, everything that you watch in a commercial, you're to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. This is how we learn discernment. This isn't just a far-off reality we're talking about here. We're talking about what impacts us from day to day. 24-7, the world is pumping its philosophy in front of our eyes and in our ears. And as believers, we have to continually take those thoughts captive. We have to continually analyze those things because the more that we are familiar with Christ's word and the more we're familiar with how Satan likes to twist Scripture the more intimate we, be, we become with Christ, we know the difference between how a lamb speaks and how a dragon speaks. And our hearts are protected, and we don't need to fear that someone will deceive us. But the second truth we see here is the mark monetarily rewards the compliant but leaves believers destitute. This is seen clearly in verses 16 and 17. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now the key word here is forced. The force comes through economic sanctions, and those sanctions are imposed on small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. No one can escape it. Access for believers is denied without this mark. It's hard to determine whether this is a monetary system or or just access to the monetary system. This is the point where people like to, to speculate. They say it's all different kinds of things. If futurists are correct, and this prophecy is what is to come, you could very easily see how a single monetary system could develop. When I was a kid, I had no idea how that would ever happen. I think we do now. I think it's easy to see. But just because some of those things may look suspicious, it doesn't mean they are the thing themselves. We keep our eyes wide open and we keep analyzing things. But just because they look like something doesn't mean that they're that thing. Wealth has been used to control people for ages, since the dawn of currency. Goods and services have been denied to people in order to control or to discipline them and even the people of God. These measures have been used to persecute the people for, uh, of God for years. Uh, the jizya, the Muslim tax on non-believers, or non-Muslim believers, basically on Christians. Communist China's fines levied for Christians, even here and now. Governments have sought to manipulate through money, rewarding those who comply and punishing those who do not comply, who stubbornly refuse to comply. And stories are told of the early days of Russia when, when school children were told Pray to Jesus that he gives you candy. And then when nothing happened, they turned to the other children, the non-Christian children, and said, pray to Lenin that you will receive candy. And they brought in baskets of candy. And this was the state's attempt to underscore that it was the state, not Christ, who had power to provide. But Scripture tells us the opposite. There may come a day when denial of faith is tied to the ability to buy and sell. I say that because Scripture says that. I say that because Christian history teaches that. In the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 
37 through 38, it describes many believers who suffered persecution this way. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. It's ironic, isn't it, that the world wants to say that it has a a, a corner of the market on worth when Scripture actually says that the the world is not worthy of these people who would give up their lives to serve Jesus Christ, who are willing to suffer for their faith. It's a reality of our past, it's a reality of our present, and it's a reality of our future, no doubt. As the spirit of Antichrist demands, there just isn't one way, and we stubbornly refuse to agree. And our consciences are captive to the word of God that there is only one way. More and more in everyday life, Christ helps us, disciples us, and leads us so that we will trust him more than money. And that's what he's working in us, this atmosphere of trust and faith in him, that even though these things may happen, even though... Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even though we will serve the Lord. Here is the promise of Jesus, the, the true provider, that he says when the rich young ruler walks away because the rich young ruler's faith was in his money. It says in Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Those who have placed their trust in Christ, no no matter what they lose here, will gain much more in heaven. We need not fear. We need not bow before the world system. We need not bow before the God of money. Though the kingdom of this world attempts to subject everyone small and great and rich and poor and free and slave, the gospel provides freedom to everyone small and great and rich and poor and free and slave. The gospel's free. Where the world tries to enslave through money, Christ offers salvation free to us. The mark monetarily rewards the compliant but leaves believers destitute. But we have this reminder from Jesus in Mark eight thirty six: What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So we've seen the mark will be clear to believers, though non-believers will be deceived. The mark monetarily rewards the compliant, but leaves believers destitute. And thirdly and finally, and perhaps most importantly, the mark will require a clear and unmistakable denial of Jesus Christ. He says, look at verses 14 and 15. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Do you want to know the secret? Do you want to know the code book to Revelation? It's the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. And I describe it this way. You know when you are hanging out with a group of friends and a subject comes up and they start to laugh and you go, what's so funny? And they say, inside joke. Or yet you go to a movie with someone who's just really, really into whatever this movie franchise is and you miss all these moments that they're just laughing about or they're enjoying because you don't know the background. Well, that's what Revelation is is like. Without 
an understanding of the Old Testament, we miss a whole lot of the book of Revelation because it's steeped in Old Testament imagery. We are meant to read Revelation 13, and it should evoke Exodus 20, verse 4, which says this, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an idol in any form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. So in chapter 13, you have a beast from the earth beneath, and you have a beast from the waters below who are seeking to cause the people of the earth to bow before a great idol, to turn away from the living God. This evokes the imagery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, when King Nebuchadnezzar set up the idol for them to bow to, and they refused. But there's also a picture of the compromise that Aaron allows in creating the golden calf. It's rich in Old Testament history. Idolatry is the very core of the kingdom of this world as it seeks to seduce away the worship of Christians to things that are lesser than Christ. Our hearts were made to worship, but they weren't, they're not fully satisfied unless we worship Christ alone. Yet something about this particular image that is set up isn't simply gravitating us towards our little idols. It's absolutely crystal clear that this idol is a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And taking this mark means I am willing to bow before an idol and declare that that God is not God and Jesus is not Jesus and Christ is not Lord. That is what's at stake here. That is what the mark is all about. It's not accidental. It's not something you're just going to oops into. It is something that is going to be outright denial of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be clear. So let me tell you, if if you're fearful that somehow you're going to misinterpret or fall victim to receiving this mark, you will not. Because you will not be tricked into this. It's not accidental. It is outright denial. You notice this even in the number of the beast. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is man's number. His number is 666. Again, the Bible helps us out here. Revelation is filled with sevens, right? Seven lampstands, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. It's denoted as the number of completeness. Why? Go back to Genesis. In six days, God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. And God meant man to walk into that Sabbath rest and worship him as God of gods. To look at what has been created and look at God and say, you are worthy of praise. But what happened instead? Man who was made on the sixth day, the beasts that were made on the sixth day, Adam decided that he wanted to be God rather than serve God. And so the whole of human history turns away from worshiping God to worshiping man. From the Roman Empire all the way to modern humanism, man is the center of all things. And man is the utmost of all things, which is a denial of who Jesus Christ is. It's a denial of who God is. Six isn't seven. It falls short. We need Christ. It's inherent in us to be idolaters. And Paul points this out in Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Idolatry focuses its worship on the creation rather than the creator, on the beast rather than the savior. And if that's what's in view of the Apostle John here, then the number 666 is the uttermost of that idolatry. This isn't an idol of our life that sometimes we have blind spots to. This is the idol of idols. This is the big deal. This is you saying, I reject Christ and I follow the world wholeheartedly. That's what it comes to, and it's clear. It requires that clear, unmistakable denial of Jesus Christ. But that isn't, you know, there's, there's more, more important, even though it isn't the biggest idol, our little idols, it's so important for us to root those out. Because the more that we give in to the little idols, the easier it is to fall for the big one. And so we are meant by the power of the Holy Spirit with the word of God to root out those idols that are in our lives. Those things that we are blind to. It's our love for the world and everything in it that can numb us and callous us to our love for Christ. Perhaps we should be more worried about those little idols in our lives now than we are concerned about that big one that's to come. Yes, we should be concerned about the big one to come, but if we're not dealing with the idols of our heart now, then how, how are we going to stand? However will we stand before that idol that day if we are the generation that will have to make that choice? A greater sensitivity to idols will cause our hearts to be all the more aware if we are that generation that encounters the idolatry of the beast. So if we're fearful that somehow the wool will be pulled over our eyes in regard to the mark of the beast, or if, you're, if you've wondered if the latest podcaster or YouTube sensation is actually accurate about their, their calling what the mark is, remember these three things. The mark will be clear to believers, though non-believers will be deceived. The mark monetarily rewards the compliant, but leaves believers destitute, and the mark will require a clear and unmistakable denial of Jesus Christ. Those three things must be true for it to be the mark. But there's one last thing here, and it's an important thing. And you don't see it in this passage. You see it in the next passage. And there's a contrast between the mark that the world takes and the mark of believers. Revelation 14, 1 through 5, and early in Revelation 7, talks about the sealing of God's people. And here's where our hope is, and here's where our faith rests. This is the same mark that, that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, don't miss this, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are called God's possession to the praise of his glory. As a kid, I used to fear all of this stuff that I read, but now I don't see revelation through the eyes of fear. I see it through the eyes of faith and hope. Because we have a God who overcomes all. We have a God who's defeated Satan. And this tells us the end of the story. And we, who have been sealed by Christ, don't have to fear because he will rescue us. If you've trusted in him, you belong to him. And if you belong to him, then you need not fear, for his Holy Spirit has sealed you for that day. As we come to a close, I want to go back to the words of John 10 when he says that my sheep hear my voice. He goes on in verse 28 to say this, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand.
If you're a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in him for salvation, that is a promise for you. You cannot be snatched from the hand of Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted in him, here's the good news. A promise can be yours today. If you haven't trusted in him, you will approach revelation in fear, and you should approach revelation in fear and trembling. But if you have faith in Christ, you need not fear. If you don't know Christ, I urge you this morning, I urge you to bow before him, for he is good. His word teaches us what is true. He dispels the idols from our heart. And he causes us, by his spirit, to persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a people who can be frightened by the way that things in the world go. It's very easy to turn on the TV right now and for us to to just have our breath taken away by things that are happening all around us. Father, still our hearts, not by wishful thinking, but by the power of your word, by knowing what's in your word, by knowing the truth of your word, but also knowing that Christ is the one who holds us and we persevere because of him, that we refuse to bow the knee because of him, that it's nothing in us that can face evil, whether it's now or to come, but it's only the power of Christ in us that causes us to persevere. Father, we praise you because he has said that we know his voice and that he will hold us and no one can snatch us from his hand. We glorify you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.